What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. One hundred sixty-seven days in space, over thirty-eight hours performing spacewalks, traveling more than six million miles, making hundreds of orbits about the Earth. But how did I get there? This is the making of an ordinary spaceman. I'm Clayton C. Anderson, and these are my stories. Ready for launch? Our countdown is underway, so let's give a go for liftoff with podcast episode number one. It has often been said that the execution of a space mission is the ultimate team sport. And that's easily understandable with crew, the spacecraft preparation team, and the mission controllers that are around the globe. And it was really the same thing for me. My path to becoming Clayton Anderson, the retired astronaut, involved a hell of a lot of people. So it's perfect to start this podcast and have with us my beautiful wife, Susan. She is beautiful. She is intelligent. She is independent. Yeah, boy, is she independent. And she is an amazing partner. (laughs) Thanks for laughing. A wonderful teammate, a wonderful mother and spouse. We've now been together for nearly... More than 29 years. <laughs> That's right. November, let's see, so 1992, so I'm going to carry the one. Okay. So, <clears throat> my dear, welcome. And perhaps you'd like to start this podcast episode out by telling the listeners how we met. <laughs> so... It was an interesting day. I was in a green dress, as I recall, um, and I was walking from Building 45 on NASA's campus. This is at Johnson Space Center. And um, I was walking around, because it was a beautiful day, walking around the buildings instead of through them to get to the cafeteria. And um, went in by the gift shop, and there you were buying something. I don't know what. <laughs> it was a badge lanyard for some friends, the Normans. Okay. And they had asked me to purchase this badge lanyard. So We had them way back then. We did. These were the clear ones, right, with the, the hook to the little clip, and you put your badge ones in you there. you can choke yourself with. Yeah, yeah that didn't break away. No yeah. breakaway lanyard. So, uh, and I was writing the check. Back in those days, we wrote checks. So <laughs> that was the stage when I turned and saw you. Uh, yeah. Breaking and I just, through the double doors. And I just walked right on by. And I followed you. Yeah, through the salad bar line. <laughs> that was a, a day. And then you started looking at my waistline where my badge was to catch my name. And Yeah, and among other things. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
I picked up my tray and you followed me through the salad bar line and you said, you work in building. <laughs> and I, Well, I didn't, hey, give me a little credit. I was more suave than that, wasn't I? I don't think so, oh. as I recall. I didn't have you, a lot of practice in this area. Yeah. I was an engineer. A nerdy but, one at that, yeah. Yeah, but I thought I said uh, either, what building do you work in? Didn't I say that? <laughs> it's like, you work in building uh, <laughs> yeah. 45? Yeah, as, I, yeah, as, 45. I cl- as I cleverly memorized your name, Susan J. Harold. Mm-hmm. Yep, so that's how it all started. And uh, from there, it, it kind of, we just met up. You well, have some stories thought, to go along with that, I know. I thought I came up with some other really classic um, engineer pickup lines. Yeah, like, I don't normally eat salad. Did I say that? I'm pretty sure you did. Oh. Well, I didn't normally. I was being truthful. I don't norm, didn't normally eat salad back then. Uh-huh. But uh, I thought I said something like, do you come here often? <laughs> you weren't that clever even. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but uh, you made an impression enough that a little ways down the way. Um, she did not sprint. Out of the cafeteria. So let the listeners know she did not sprint at a rapid pace out of the cafeteria. But I did bail on you. She did bail on me. Yes, that's true. I ate salad by myself that day. I was quite depressed. But then, you know, do you want to continue the story or should I take over? Well, I think it's your story to tell because I really wasn't involved in the next steps. (laughs) so. So I went back to my office. Yeah. At the Johnson Space Center, and and in those days, I worked in Building 30 on the first floor, and I grabbed the telephone book because we did. <laughs> this is back in the right eighties. You, you had 80s. to share computers. We uh, no, every, yeah, everything it was, was it was ninety. Well, late eighties is ninety. Okay. <laughs> so in the in nineteen ninety, I went back to my desk and I grabbed my NASA phone book and I rippled through the pages and I looked up Susan J. Harold, right? And of course back then it told you where she worked, what building she was in and and gave her five digit, right? Five, yes, uh-huh. NASA still five digits, yeah. Phone phone number. So then I got up the courage and I dialed that number and I got the administrative assistant, which we called a secretary back then, but it was a guy mm-hmm. and I said who I was and that I was trying to reach Susan uh Harold. And he said, she's not available. And I left a message, and please tell her that Clayton Anderson called. My number is, I don't even remember what my number was, but I gave mine you my number. Mine was 33076. I think mine was 38133 or something like that. Okay. Anyway, I left that message, and I never heard from her again. <laughs> uh, then fast forward, what, a couple weeks? And, yeah. We and were, you got I'm, bored. I was at home. I was watching TV by myself, and I was kind of uh, lonely and bored. And and uh, so they had delivered the new phone books, and they were the mini phone oh, yeah, books. yeah, those little ones yeah. that were real fat, but they were they like this big. big. But they were, and you, had to, you couldn't read them unless you had really good eyes. But yeah. I was going through, and truth be told, I was going through looking for the names of, Not for me. of women that I knew. <laughs> and... I found one. I found two, actually. I found Susan's, but I didn't find hers first. I found another young lady. And who did you call? I called her first because I knew her better. I mean, gee whiz. So I called her up, and uh, 
I got her mother. <laughs> <laughs> Not my mother. No, I got this other gal's mom. And uh, uh, hi, this is uh, Clay Anderson is your daughter there. Uh, no, she's not here, Clay. And I think she told me she was dating somebody. So, you know, that was like the most, probably the most awkward phone call I've ever had in my life, uh, except for the time I called the Internal Revenue. No, that's another story. But uh, so then I called your number and I got your answering machine and I hung up on it. Nice. <laughs> that's a way to get a date. Uh-huh. And uh, I believe I waited a little while longer and I called a little later in the evening and you answered the phone and you were just coming back from a softball game at, at NASA at the Johnson Space Center. Oh yeah, co-ed softball that I was really good at. <laughs> I played right field, you know. She was really good running to first base though. <laughs> so um, I called and asked you out for a date and I believe you said yes, right? Yeah, sure. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah, but then you went and asked everybody about me. I did, yeah. And I, my roommate, my office mate, not roommate, my office mate at the time was not so sure about you. <laughs> but that's okay. They were just looking out for me. It, true, yeah. true. And then we went to Dos Mas, Dos Mas for lunch. For Tex-Mex food. That yep. was our first date. Yeah. And I guess the rest is history. Yeah, because you asked me out again and I said yes. Oh, I have, wow. to, I have to do the caveat, though. Because we went to Dos Moss, mm-hmm. and I remember exactly what you were wearing mm-hmm. and how I, what I, you looked like when I first walked into your office area. That pink suede skirt was great. Yes. It was you, my favorite skirt. You looked fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And we had a good di- time at lunch, so I came back, and after you went back into your building, I immediately called my sister-in-law, Gina. Oh, yeah, Kirby's wife, uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh, Kirby's wife, and I said, hey, I just had a really nice lunch date with this beautiful woman, and I need your advice. Should I ask her out immediately? Or should I, you know, wait? And she's, oh, immediately, immediately. Don't. So actually, I had done that beforehand, I think, because I asked you out before you, I asked you out again before you went back into your office. That's really confusing, but okay. Yeah, I think that's what happened. Okay. And because you said you, you were, I said, can you go out Saturday night? And you said, no, I'm busy. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, and I thought you were blowing me off again. I said, yeah, well, well, how I'm about this? How about the weekend after that? And you said, yes. So. So then, and we went ballroom dancing. Yeah, that was fun. I had a great dress that day too. Yep, we were the youngest by about thirty-five years <laughs> couple in the entire <laughs> joint, and we were we were fox trotting and waltzing and the live band was fun. Yes, yeah. and all the old people would come by and tell us, "Oh, we're so happy to see you here, and are you coming back?" And and we never went back. No, well, it closed. The place closed. Was it that soon after? Yeah. No. But it was a great, great time, yeah. and uh, we continued to date, and here we are. Here so. we are, a bunch of years later, three decades later. So now, let's fast forward. So everybody knows how we hooked up mm-hmm. in the early days. Oh, let's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I, okay, I give up. <clears throat> so now I think maybe the next story that comes to mind for me is still before I was an, had become an astronaut. And you and I had received a free trip to the Kennedy Space Center to watch a launch mm-hmm. because you had earned this opportunity through your work. Yeah, and, it was called Spaceflight Awareness. Right. And mm-hmm. you were working for the Space Shuttle Mir Phase 1 program. Yes. And you won this award, so we got to go 
to the Kennedy Space Center and witness an actual live launch. And it just so happened to be the weekend or the time when I would get the call. Yeah, we didn't necessarily know that. Um, and this was the second time around because you got interviewed in 96 and this was right. 98. Right. Yeah. Um, we already had coal and um, we were in Florida uh, for Space Flight Awareness Honorary event. And uh, we went to a big party um, mm-hmm. at the cruise terminal. And all these managers who I had worked with or actually working for at the time and people that you had worked for um, kept saying, where are you guys going to be? Where, where are you headed? Um, are you going to the launch tomorrow? Uh, you know, where are you going to be in the next couple of days? Uh, and, and, and how can people get a hold of you? I mean, it was just really strange conversations. Uh, it's okay to smile. Uh, yeah, just odd little, that, yeah. odd little things that were like, what is going on? I mean, it was either Frank Culbertson saying it or Randy Stone or just random managers that were um, coming up to us at weird times and saying things. And then the next day was launch day, and um, we had kind of talked about what was that what was that all right. about. But why that seems strange to both of us. Yeah, and then we went to launch, and we sat on the front seat of the upper deck of a bus, and oh, it was hotter hot. than yeah, oh they, my goodness. The AC hot. didn't work, did it? That's, oh, that's right. well, you've got those big glass windows, and you're in the front seat yep. on the top. It was horrid, <laughs> horrid hot, and. Um, but it was fun, you know, get to go on a launch and, mm-hmm. and be a part of the party and not part of the work um, made it even more fun. Um, and so that was all great, super fun. And then the next day, uh, it was time to go back to Houston. And what did we do after that? We, we got in the car to so go our, somewhere. our flight was kind of late in the day out of Orlando, so you had that drive. But we went to the uh, Port Canaveral lock station. What were we going to do there? Look for manatees. Oh, yeah. 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 That was... <laughs> I'd have still never seen one. <laughs> <laughs> nope, we didn't see any there, but it was a good day. It was. Your your beeper went off. That's what we had back then, beepers. And I was the emergency I was the yeah, emergency operations center guy and my pager went off and the number in it uh had a it was three two one something 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 something. Yeah, that's their their three two one is area the area code, code at Kennedy, well, I had no idea it was 321 because of launches and stuff, right? I was pretty naive about all that stuff. So I'm looking at this pager number, and I'm thinking, I don't know who this is, but being the emergency guy, I probably ought to call him back. Well, we had no cell phones though in those days. <laughs> so we had to find a telephone at the Port Canaveral lock station, which was kind of difficult because it's not exactly an office building. So we looked around, and there was a little shed, a little shack, a government-looking shack with, you know, that front door with the uh, pane of glass at the top that had four squares. And we peeked through there, and we saw one of those black rotary dial telephones yeah. on one desk <laughs> in this little shack. No people. No people. And we, you know, we're like spies, you know, sneaking up, <laughs> peeking through the windows and yes. rubbing a hole so you can put your eye through there. And then we opened the door slowly, and hello, hello. No one was there. No. So we went to the phone, and it's got all the buttons that you light for the lines, you know. So I picked a button because I had no idea. I just pushed the button and got the line and got the dial tone. And then I'm thinking, how do you get out? How do you dial out? Do you have to have a number? And typically it was 8, so I tried 8, 3, 2, 1, dialed the number. And I'm standing there with one foot up on the desk waiting, and 
the phone, the lady answers the phone and says, crew quarters, how may I help you? And I'm thinking, crew quarters? What's crew quarters? I'm like, Yahoo, we know what this is. Well, you didn't I knew know what yet. This, well, kind of. I like, was ready with the camera. I got the little, the little, what, instant, instant camera, the yeah. ones that, you know, had 15 pictures, pictures on them or whatever. Yeah, disposables. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, this is Clayton Anderson, and I got a page to this number, and I think you want my wife, Susan, because she's a part of the Shuttle Mirror Phase 1 program, which was the launch that we were there to see, the last launch. And so I said, I, I, don't, I think you want her, and she goes, stand by. <laughs> stand by. And so I waited, and then she came back and she said, Dave Liesma will be with you in a moment. And that's when I said, oh, I know Dave what this Liesma. is. Dave Liesma. Dave Liesma, he's the head of all the astronauts. Holy so I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, I think I know. I whisper, I think I know what this is. And Dave Liesma comes on. And he says, Clay, this is Dave Liesma. How are you? Uh, uh, I'm good, sir. And he says, hey, uh, are you still interested in becoming a long-duration mission specialist? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I <clears throat> used a good astronaut voice. Yeah. And he, sure. he said, when are you coming back to Houston? And I said, well, we'll be, we're leaving today. And he says, well, I'll see you then. Congratulations. And I hung up the phone. I look at my wife. She's bawling. <laughs> She's got mascara coming down her eyeball. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. I'm going to be an astronaut. And we hugged. <laughs> and there was nobody <laughs> and around. And we ran outside. <laughs> and there was nothing. Nobody to tell. <laughs> what a bummer that was. So we, you know. We looked for manatees maybe for another 10 minutes. Yeah, and then we're like, we got to get to Because we had to tell somebody. So we Orlando. hopped in the car, in the rental car, and we hauled butt to Orlando. To Orlando and we, f- we ch- got into the airport and checked in however we did it back then. And then we had to get coins because we were going to yeah. make phone calls. <laughs> On, yeah, and they had a bank of pay phones, right? And, the, and you, all you young kids out there listening, hey, this is how it was. Way back then, we had, had no cell phones and, and none of that there stuff. But we we finally got money and made a call, and the first person we called was my mother. She wasn't there. <laughs> then I called my brother. We're he, pacing he wasn't back there. in front of those phones. <laughs> then I called my sister. She wasn't there. And so then we called Sue's parents. Yeah. And Sue's dad, Jack, uh, answered the phone. And my dad had been gone since, you know, 1984, so Jack was dad to me now. And... uh I told him what happened, and and he started to cry. And that was the coolest reaction I ever could have imagined from from my father-in-law. Yeah. So the other cool thing that happened that day was as we boarded the airplane, right, headed from Orlando back to Houston, it's full of NASA people, right, because of the there was a launch and there was parties and all that stuff. So there's a lot of NASA people on the plane, and a lot of NASA people knew Sue, and some of them knew me, and some of them started to clap when I guess they knew, and that was... That was all part of that party a couple nights beforehand. Yes. They all knew, and we didn't. And so you're on a Southwest Airlines jet headed for Houston, and you're walking to your seat, and people start clapping and then t- congratulating you, and it's like, oh, my God, and our lives would never be the same. Yeah, that's for sure. For sure. So... Given that our lives would never be the same, eventually I ended up traveling to Russia. 
Yeah. And that was not easy for me, nor was it easy for you and the kids. We had two kids at that time, Sutton and Cole. Um, Cole was six, roughly, in that time frame, and Sutton was two when I started to head to Russia, right? Yeah, she was definitely still in diapers. Right. And uh, I would go every other month, roughly. I'd spend four, three to four to five weeks in Moscow and or Star City. Mm-hmm. And then I would come home for a month in Houston and back to Russia. And, and I made a side trip to Canada. I made side trips to Japan and Germany. But the first 12 weeks of my career as an astronaut were four weeks in Moscow, in Russia, a week in Houston, two weeks in Canada, a, w- a week in Houston, and four more weeks in Russia. So my first 12 weeks of training, I spent two of those weeks with my family. Yeah, so it was after you'd been a, an astronaut, though, for multiple years. This was 2003, I think, 2004. Right. Yeah. So it was after you'd gotten an assignment to, to start training. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the preparation for that was kind of interesting because well, once you, you knew you were going to start training, um, then you started worrying about going to Russia because you'd never really been before. And I had been a couple times and you were worried you weren't going to be able to have anything to eat. Yeah, I think that was the thing that was the most scary part for you. That's what I recall anyway, is that what am I going to eat? You know, where am I going to get food? I better take a lot of food. And so he started stacking little things along the, the bedroom walls of what he was going to take with him. And it was like Pop-Tarts and granola bars and, you know, the most random weird food um, that he could take in his suitcases because he was afraid he was going to starve. Peanut butter. Don't forget peanut butter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe maybe we should back up a little bit and talk about what happened then in August when I got selected in 1998. Was there anything that stood out to you in those first couple years of training as the the new astronaut, the baby astronaut's husband or spouse? Excuse me. Well, I think that probably the biggest thing for me, which um, I found really unusual, but maybe most people wouldn't, is that we were civilians and about half the class were military and the other half of the class were civilians. And um, I felt treated differently. Uh, And um, so that was unusual for me because I'd been at NASA now um, at that point like eight eight years and had um, some interesting experiences that I wanted to share with people and there wasn't an interest in my being able to share that because we were civilians. And so I thought that was strange and different. Um, but it and was unexpected, unexpected. Yeah. yeah. But, and, and I think you kind of experienced that as well. You had the most time in grade working for the government of anybody in the class. Uh, and we were the class of the penguins, 98 group 17. And I was a GS 15 on the government scale. So that meant if I were in the Navy, I could command an aircraft carrier. <laughs> yeah. That would not have been a good idea. No. Oh, it would have been a tremendous amount of fun. <laughs> Yeah, for whom? <laughs> Everyone. Everyone. Yeah, not now. That wouldn't have been in your bailiwick at all. But um. but it's it's interesting to note that, you know, given that military thing, military civilian, that I felt the same thing, even though I was equivalent or outranked many of them based on my time and grade. That right. I could have been an aircraft carrier commander, and some of my classmates were not that there yet. Right. 
but it was very unique in how the that blending of civil service and and military right. yeah so that was i think the biggest surprise for me having already lived in houston we didn't have to go and and make friends right. we already had a church family we already had our neighbors and our home and and of course the rest of the class um the majority of the class they were uh, looking for new homes, finding what mm-hmm. schools they wanted their kids to go to, um, you know, finding their church home if that was what they chose to to experience, um, and all of that was already in place for us. So there were some differences I think that we experienced than other people did, and and vice versa. Right. I think that that whole experience um, it was preparatory for everything, of course, mm-hmm. but it didn't prepare me for a lot of things as I look back on it, right? You know, yeah. we would travel to the various NASA centers to see what they did and what they did and what they did, and, and we would take some training classes in media and how to present to the public, um, things like that, before we actually got into real training. Right. Um, so I have something that came to mind while we were talking about um, the first few weeks of, of astronaut uh, training and so forth. Was, I didn't sleep well. <laughs> That's true. But this was earlier. This was even before you re- reported for duty, even though you were already a civil servant and so forth. So reporting for duty was a little bit different. But um, within about a week of um, getting the phone call, you went out and played softball oh, yeah. and uh, tore your ACL. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My and, left ACL, I believe. And um, yeah, that was not a good phone call that you had to make to the astronaut selection board. <laughs> No, um, you're right. I remember I was hugely scared that they would boot me out yeah. of the Corps. Exactly. And when I called Dwayne Ross, who was the head of the Astronaut Selection Committee or a Selection Board, um, and told him what had happened, he says, ah, you're good. Well, the first thing you said to him was, is there any reason once you've been selected that you can be kicked out? <laughs> and Dwayne said something to the effect of, well, as long as you didn't get arrested, I think we're probably okay. Yeah. I don't remember that part. <laughs> Maybe I purged it from my memory. That Mike. might be. That might be. But anyway, in the long <laughs> run, you just were a little bit behind because you ended up having to have surgery right away. But because you were now an astronaut, um, the orthopedic surgeon got you in pretty quickly, got you in your physical therapy. Yep. And um, you were only a couple, three months behind the rest of the folks in terms of your uh, T-38 training. Um, and the main thing was right. you had to be able to jump out of the plane. when it, it, To parachute, right. And uh-huh. I, it couldn't do that. And I remember we went to Pensacola uh, for water survival training, the whole class. Mm-hmm. And I traveled with them thinking that I would get the class. And then they told me, dude, you're, you have a bum knee. You got to go home. Uh, what? <laughs> so I didn't get to, I didn't get to uh, do any of the survival training. I, I think I went home the very first day. And I would have to come back. That was in November or no. October, I think. Yeah, because you were cleared by November. Yeah, I would come back for water survival training in February of the following year, mm-hmm. I think. That yeah. makes sense. And so, yeah. fortunately, so. Be, being a former athlete, that, that helped a lot because rehab was, was good. I knew how to rehab. I knew that I was going to be in pain, but I fought past the pain, and I think that uh, Dr. Daniel O'Neill said that if you do what they tell you, you'll be referee in basketball, which was a passion of mine at the time, uh, in 90 days. And and I was. I was back on the floor almost to the day that he said. And, of course, once – I do remember, though, that when I had that big old knee brace on, I'd always wear long uh, 
suit pants, slacks, such that you couldn't really tell I had a knee brace on because I didn't want anybody, on, you know, to see it. Like, oh, he's oh, he's damaged goods. <laughs> He'll never fly. But uh, <laughs> it could happen, yeah. But fortunately, we got through that. Yeah. And uh, I would become a baby astronaut and do all the things that were necessary to do. And um, yeah. So fast forward to. 2003, 2004, I guess. Which was the Columbia time frame. Two, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So your Russian experience was after Columbia. Right. So yeah. maybe we should speak about Columbia for a second. Okay, if you're ready for me to maybe be a little emotional. <laughs> I, uh, the odds are good that I will be too. Okay. Because it, it. it was a tough time. So um, Prior, I was, so now I, I was still a baby astronaut because I used that term. I coined that term, I believe. Yeah, um, maybe. And now we've documented that I've coined the term baby astronauts. So <clears throat> we had not been, uh, most of us had made it through the initial part of our basic training that I call it. And then we had been assigned office jobs. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's what happens to a young astronaut that's not ready for a flight assignment, you finish your basic training and then you get placed into a job. And mine was for worrying about the electrical power system of the International Space Station, which had not even, well, was in process of being built. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that, I attended meetings, I reviewed stuff, looked at procedures and all that kind of thing. And I also got a call from the commander of STS-107, Rick Husband, which was the Columbia crew. And... As I remember it, he calls, and, and he was a great guy. He was a good old boy from Amarillo, Texas, um, man of strong faith, uh, lovely family. Kids yep. were about, uh, I think his son was about seven. Cole's age, right? Yeah. Well, he was a year older. And his older. daughter was a few few years older. Yeah, so maybe seven and 11 or something like that. And Rick husband calls me, and he says, hey, Clay. And I'm thinking, why is he calling me? Have I done something wrong again? And he asked me if I would be a family escort. And I said, well, yeah, I'll be a family escort. But I had no idea what a family escort really was. I knew what the, what the position was, but I really didn't know what they did. And I told him yes, and that I was honored to be one. And it would turn out that there would be four of us. Um, Steve Lindsay, me, Scott Perzinski, and Terry Verts would, were all the four family escorts. And uh, there was a document to read, and I probably looked at it. I don't know that I learned a whole lot from it, but uh, I was following Steve Lindsay, who had been a family escort before, a veteran shuttle commander, uh, several flights under his belt, Perzinski, a spacewalker, several flights under his belt. Um, Terry was the, the newest class behind me. Right. And so here I was, family escort, and we went to the Cape. We, we spent time with their families. Um, and when we got to the Cape for the launch was when things really started to happen and get serious. Uh, I remember going to the park uh, with the children and pushing them in the swings and helping them down the slide, and uh, everything was going great, of course, until and then we had launch day. Well, launch day, as I recall, since there was an Israeli on the crew, <clears throat> you were in um, kind of a, a different situation and had to ride in an SUV um, mm-hmm. As a decoy, is that right? Well, we had, the way it worked was when we flew to the Cape, the very first day we got out and we went into a big conference room and had a meeting with the FBI. Nice. (laughs) FBI! I didn't do it. Honestly, honestly, I didn't do it. 
And Elon Ramon, who was a classmate of mine in 98, he was a penguin with Group 17 and a great guy. He was the reason there was, you know, fear from uh, the 9-11 incident mm-hmm. and the fact that he was an Israeli uh, fighter pilot, that there was the pot- potential for terrorist activity. So the FBI was brought in, and each of us, each family escort, was assigned a couple crewmate, crew members. So I had um, uh, Dave Brown's brother, Doug. I had uh, Casey Chavla, mm-hmm. uh, her husband. And I had JP. Willie, Mc- yeah, JP, and I had Willie McCool's wife Lonnie. So those were my three astronauts. I gave, I got a SUV, a big black SUV, but I also got an FBI agent with an, with his own SUV. <laughs> so that was what we did. We worked to coordinate what we were going to do because the astronaut side, we knew how the process works, right? The FBI did not know, so we had to educate them. And the FBI guys were basically stalkers of sorts, and they would follow each of us and do the things we needed to do while maintaining their FBI-ness. <laughs> if you can, I mean. Was it FBI? It wasn't Secret Service? Oh, no, it was FBI. Okay. I'm almost certain it was FBI, but it's okay. been a long time. Yeah, or, or diplomatic maybe, security services. Maybe, maybe they were Secret Service posing as FBI agents. Could be. Well, you know, when it's when it's a foreign national, it's usually diplomatic security services, yeah. DSS, yeah, I, I diplomatic. And it could have been services. it could have been different back then, but anyway. Yeah. So as we head toward, um, well, on launch morning, there was a significant activity for me. We had to go to the condominium where all the families were, the kids and the spouses and stuff, and we got their luggage and those things and loaded it on because the, the plan was launch would be successful, everything would be good, and we you know, take all that home. And it was. Everything went fine, right? Yeah, everything did go great. We Uh, ended up um, uh, going to a concert with the Andersons and the husbands, Steve Green. Steve Green, yep. They're a family, personal family friend. Yep, that was was wonderful. Uh, Everything was great. And the the mission was going superb. And uh, uh, how many days was it? Was it a 14-day mission? It was long because it was a science mission right. with the space lab in the, in the payload the bay. space hab in the payload bay yeah so then it was time to go back for um for landing but one th- one thing i remember from liftoff was the fact that as we headed toward uh, the pad that mor- the morning that we they lifted off as we drove up toward uh cape canaveral the air force station that's on the south end of of ksc kennedy space center as we got there, we stopped at the guard shack, and there were about, it looked to me like a 1,000 motorcycles. Yeah. And it was so cool because when they gave the, the go to, to head onto the site, man, you heard all those, vroom, vroom, and, and, you know, however many, there was at least 100. I don't know if it was 1,000. It looked like 1,000, but there was a lot of motorcycles. And they crank up their engines, and these, these state police or whatever they were start hauling onto the site in two-by-two-by-two-by-two. Two by two by two, and then we pull in in our SUV, and some more get behind us, and then another SUV pulled in, and more got behind it. I mean, we had this caravan that went for a mile, and it was just the most impressive thing that I'd ever seen. It was so cool to be a part of that. Yeah, I'll bet. And we did similar things when we came back for landing. Uh, that morning, I remember waking up and going to get the families together because on the landing day, if everything went fine, they would be jumping on a, a private plane, well, one of NASA's private planes, 
with all their stuff and we'd fly back to Houston. So we were prepping all that with the families, getting all their stuff loaded into the SUVs and making sure we knew everything was in the right place. And I remember going to the Dunkin' Donuts that was just out <clears throat> in front of the condominium about a half a mile. You had to walk a little bit to get to it. But as I got to the uh, Dunkin' Donuts, I met uh, John Clark, who was uh, Laurel Clark's husband. Right. And he was there buying donuts for his son, Ian. And so we chatted a little bit, right? It was morning conversation. How's the weather look? Looks like it's going to be good for landing, you know, yada, yada, yada. The mission went great. Everything's cool. Can't wait to see my wife. You know, Ian's so excited to see his mom again. Uh, and then we just went on with our morning. Um, it was pretty early because it was landing was supposed to be at like 8.04 Houston time. Yeah, 9, 9.15 is what I remember because okay. the clock was going to turn over to, that makes sense. to 0.9.15. And uh, then we got uh, the astronauts left the families at the at the crew quarters at the Kennedy Space Center. Um, took care of putting all their bags in their rooms and and that sort of thing, and taking the stuff out to the uh, skid strip, it's called, which was where we we're going to take off from. And then we grabbed our families uh, when it was time to head to the landing site, the shuttle landing facility. And I had. SLF, and I had Lonnie and Doug and uh, JP with me, and we headed out, and I remember it was a little foggy, it was a little cloudy, and Lonnie, being the wife of a Navy fighter pilot, kind of knew about the weather, and she was a little nervous, and the piece we haven't put in here yet is that on launch day, a chunk of foam had apparently broken off of the external tank where it connects to the runners that t- attach to the shuttle. Did the families know about this foam loss, or was that I something? think they did. Okay. Uh, everybody seemed to know about it. Nobody seemed to care that it, it right, was. Right, because it, was it had happened before. Before, right. Mm-hmm. And so Steve Lindsay and I actually, on launch after launch, we had gone to dinner that night, and we had run into uh, a shuttle program person who would eventually become an astronaut, Shannon Walker, and she had said something about the foam, and we were talking about it at dinner, and she said, but it's no issue, there's no concern with the foam chunk, and so everybody was comfortable with that. So then fast forward to landing day, and as Lonnie and I with the other families were driving out to the landing facility, we drive by that big pine tree that has an eagle nest in oh. the top. It was six tons of it's nest. The, it's a huge nest. It's visible to everyone. It's the, one of the key things on the uh, campus of K- Kennedy Space Center. That, that all the tourists are pointed out. Right. And the, the legacy is that if you see the mama eagle sitting on the top of the nest, it's a great sign. It's a good omen. And as we drove by that, she wasn't there. And, of course, wow, Lonnie with the weather worries and, and no eagle, she was a little concerned. And I say, look. They did the deorbit burn, which means that they know the weather's going to be good because they wouldn't do that deorbit burn to to leave space and come home unless they were certain the weather was going to be good. So we shouldn't worry about that. We we know that the winds come up, the sun comes out, and it blows all that fog and burns all that fog off, so we're going to be just fine. And, of course, as we got to the shuttle landing facility, it was a beautiful day. Right. Sunshine. Blue not sky. Not a cloud in the mm-hmm. sky. The kids were playing uh, they had given the families, or they give the families, a, a secluded area with uh, bleachers, an countdown clock, and 
lots of grass for the kids to run around. They were throwing frisbees. They were running, chasing, giggling, laughing. People were in the stands. Everything was good. And we as astronaut escorts just kind of hung out and did whatever was needed. And I remember I was talking with Laurel Clark's sister with Steve Lindsay. And we're just shooting the breeze and we're looking at the countdown clock. And then NASA gives us the audio um, that allows us to hear what's going on. And as we listened, it didn't sound right to us. Our training told us that we should expect to hear this, this, and this. And we heard UHF comm check, which is out of the normal. And I looked at Steve, and Steve said, hey, what? yeah, what's going on with the UHF comm check? That's not part of the deal. And, and he said, being a veteran shuttle commander, perhaps they're in an area of ratty comm, which means things happen, the plasma heats up around the shuttle, and you can't really hear what's going on. So that's what we thought. But then I looked to my left, and there was a security guard from KSC, and they always wore dark gray slacks, a white button-down shirt, and a blue blazer. And she had back then one of those big black walkie-talkies, and she had it on her right ear. And I'll never forget this. As I looked at her, she puts the walkie-talkie to her ear, and her face turns white. And I don't know how, but Steve, I turned to look at Steve Lindsay, and he looked at me, and he said, Get ready. And my, my heart sank, right? I had a, a ache in the pit of my stomach because I knew something was wrong. Right? As we listened, we knew something wasn't normal. Um, but who, I would never would have imagined that it was going to be this. So on my end, um, I was sitting in the family room watching the TV. Uh, and our son was old enough to know what was going on and where Dad was. And uh, it was about... 8.04 Houston time, and um, I kept turning up the volume on NASA TV, and I wasn't getting any any sound, no audio whatsoever. And then all of a sudden it blared out, um, search and rescue's been called in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Mm. Yeah, and, and of course we didn't hear that. And, and about that time, I was loading up my family members into my SUV and out of instinct, I reached to the radio and turned it off because I, I didn't want them to hear anything because we didn't know. Right. We, f- we feared, but we didn't know. Well, and, and Cole kept asking, Mom, where's the T-38? Shouldn't the T-38 be following the shuttle by now? Shouldn't, shouldn't that be what's going on? Yeah, he knew. He, he was <laughs> well-trained by his family to understand what was going on. And, and meanwhile, we're in a caravan driving back to crew quarters with these families who have been ushered away from the landing site and having not heard the sonic booms or seen the shuttle or that T-38. So it was pretty grim. And inside of my car, it was very quiet until Dave Anderson's brother, Doug, started to say things like, oh, I talked to Dave about this. And, you know, this Dave Brown, Dave Brown. And I talked to him and you know, he told me about this. He told me this could happen, and I said, "Doug, you, you need to be quiet. We don't know. Let's just let's just be silent for now until we get back to crew quarters and find out what happened." And uh, yeah, of course, you know, we found out. Yeah, and uh, it took a long time to find out, or it took a long time for NASA to come down and tell the families, and then that was a moment that is burned into my brain again. At home. Uh, I went into the kitchen because I knew the phone was going to start ringing. And Cole came in and said, 
they're not coming home, are they? Mm. <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> and then um, he said, do they have any... <laughs> Do they have any kids my age? And all I could think of was Ian and Matthew. And, and I said, yes, Cole, you met them at Christmas this year when, when Santa came to the, flew in on the T-38 at Ellington Field. And, uh, and then he walked back into the family room and started playing. And then we waited. And then the phone calls started coming. Yep. And uh, as I was with the families, I called my mom. And I, well, first I called Susan. I told you I was okay and what had happened. And then I called my mom and told her what was going on and that I was okay. And then I had to become a family escort. And now I knew what the job was. (laughs) Uh, I knew how hard it was, uh, but I was there for the families and I did whatever I could, especially for Ian Clark and the husband kids um, and the Anderson daughters. Uh, They were. They were all pretty distraught, right? I remember Matt, husband, he just wanted to go back to the swimming pool at his hotel and swim. And and uh, Laura, husband, asked her mom, who's going to walk me down the aisle when I get married? Mm. I mean, you know, when you hear stuff like that, it just hits you in the gut. Right. You, you don't know what to do. And so I relied on my faith and uh, being a dad. Yeah. And just talked to the kids and tried to console them. And, you know, it was the longest day probably in my life because we ended up having to go into their rooms because what happens on a shuttle launch is you pack a bag in case you have to land in uh, up the East Coast or in case you have to land across the ocean in Europe or Africa or around the world in California. So you pack a bag for all those places and we had to make sure we had gathered all their stuff that they'd prepacked, and of course it had their name tags on all their bags, and you know the families in the room, and and they don't know what to do, and uh, it, it was just a really difficult time. Yeah. And that two-hour plane flight back to Houston was a killer. <laughs> so how about we take a break? That sounds like a good plan, huh? <laughs> I love you. I love you. Please rate, review, follow, subscribe as it helps others find my podcast. Thank you for listening. And a special thank you to my dear friend Chip Davis of Mannheim Steamroller fame for the use of his talents and music. A Huda Media Production.